Hello and welcome back. When we finished last Sunday, we were at uh, about 0.6, if you're using the outline, which is on page 5. Just over halfway down the page, 0.6 is where we'll, we'll be starting today. Again, I have Pastor Merritt with me. And before we begin, let's remember 1 John 1, nine as may or may not be necessary. All right, here we go, point six. Now David had brought up the ark of God from Kareath, Jerem, to the place he had prepared for it, because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Seven, but the bronze altar that Bezalel son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made was in Gibeon, in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the assembly inquired of him there. 8. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Now we continue on with Solomon's prayer for wisdom. Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now we're going to see David what he's going to ask for, and it's going to buy him a lot of good things. Unfortunately, he's not going to be able, like many of us, handle all the good things that uh, God will give him as a result of him asking for the right thing and not the wrong thing. Excuse me for interrupting. It's hard to know what the right thing is sometimes, but if we just ask for the right thing, we'll be a lot closer, won't we? Isn't that the truth? Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Point four. God, in his omniscience, knows Queen of the South, not to be confused with the TV show, (laughs) is going to need more than wisdom to impress her majesty. Well, God has got a, a demonstration here of his omniscience. Not that we ever should have doubted or would have doubted. He knew what was going on. He knew what uh, Solomon's going to need. And uh, he knew that uh, that gal down south, uh, whoever she was, and that's subject to a great deal of questions, just who's he talking about. Uh, But uh, we probably think it's the queen of the horn in Africa, which uh, more than likely is uh, uh, either Yemen or part of Egypt or one of the many nations that happen to be located on the horn. And if you look at their website, you can see the horn depicted and described. Uh, and I forget the page that it's on, but it'll I be... I think it's four, four. Uh, which you can see, but it's in the last lesson yeah. uh, outline. And it is highly... It's, it, it looks like a horn. Uh, I think if you keep that in mind, and that's uh, going to be important, and we're going to talk about it later on, but... Uh, Specifically, what country was she in charge of? 
we really don't know, but uh, excuse me, Dave, go ahead. God speaks again. Since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you, and I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you will have. Then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place of Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel as a wise king, but more than that, though he did not ask for wealth, wealth he shall have. The tent of meeting is, uh, of course, the tent which uh, existed before the uh, temple and uh, served as the temple, but it was a tent that they moved from place to place as they traveled around. And the Hebrew word for that is interesting. It is O-H-E-L. O-H-E-L. When you transliterate it. And uh, it was quite a chore to pack that tent up and all the things in it and move it. And once they got to a place where Moses had information that God wanted him to stop there, they would watch him, old Moses with his staff, and he would walk toward the temple, and they uh, what would later be known as the temple, toward the O-L, the tent. And uh, then all of a sudden they'd look up and here would come a big cloud and God would be moving in there and he would talk to uh, Moses. And of course, later on, we're going to see he talks to Solomon. Okay, David, let's see what else we can find out here about this hell. And uh, of course, uh, in this case, Solomon as opposed to Moses. Solomon's wealth, point one. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. David, this to me is very interesting because if we go way back in the the Bible, it says you should not have horses and you should not have chariots. I do not want you to have them. The reason being, if you have horses and chariots, you're going to want to... Oh, it was so nice back in Egypt. You're going to want to go back to Egypt. But they did it anyway, and just the loving God that we see every day in our own lives, uh, rather than uh, stamp him out like an ant, he took care of him and gave him another chance. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt, which you were alluding to, and from Q. The royal merchants purchased them from Q, Tarsus. Tarsus is famous, you remember. Yes, That's right. Home of who? Whom? Paul. Paul. Solomon imported chariots and horses from Egypt. He also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Armenians. Solomon imported chariots and horses from Egypt. Of course, you know, we all know where Egypt was. He also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites. 
The Hittites were very interesting people because for years and years, or as my daddy would say, years and years, Jerry, uh, the, uh, there's no such thing as the Hittites, but uh, uh, they were digging one day and uh, found out that they were wrong and God was right. How often does that happen? Uh, there was a huge Hittite nation, which was about a third of Turkey today. Uh, and then, of course, we we talked about the Arameans uh, uh, before. So it's interesting how God, from time to time, has hidden even civilizations from us, just to show how smart He is and how uh, mm, dumb we are. Sorry, Dave. Point five. Solomon received not only knowledge and wisdom, but also riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings before him. The stage is being set for the historical meeting mentioned in the Old and New Testaments. Solomon's prosperity and success were also achieved through ingenious reforms and innovations such as the improvement of defense measures, the expansion of the royal court, the financial windfall from more sophisticated taxation. There's some people out there that love that, wouldn't they? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> labor, labor conscriptions and Canaanites and Israelites, tributes and gifts from foreign countries under the influence of Solomon, and a land and sea trading system that utilized a powerful military to protect assets and trade routes. King, go ahead, G. King Solomon and Sheba. Oh, here's our interesting story. Uh, Solomon's going to go impress this lady Sheba, so who lives and rules uh, in this horn of Africa, perhaps uh, Yemen, uh, who knows. Uh, are one of the countries that exist on the horn itself. But uh, King Solomon was also famous for international trade relations, forming alliances with other nearby powerful nations such as Egypt, Moab, Tyre, and Arabia. So perhaps it's better, since we're going to talk more about Sheba now, uh, let me if you will, they provide an anecdote. Uh, since we don't know for sure where Sheba ruled, there are many conjectures, and probably the best conjecture is Yemen, where we find civil war going on right now. And uh, the uh, uh, story I'm about to tell is out of my own life. I had a boyhood friend, as he said, he actually owned two savings and loans, and uh, as uh, I kidded him a lot, he was also the guy that uh, lost, uh, loaned money to one of our over-optimistic developers who lost $80 million of our tax money, but uh, he used to sleep out in front our front yard when we were kids. In fact, he said, you know, I can't put on any airs. This is after he became uh, president and chairman of two large savings and loans in Texas. 
and uh, he said, I got to meet the lady that turned Jerry Merritt around. And so we went and had dinner one night after he became a member of the board of directors of the company that I worked for. And uh, he was uh, telling us uh, various stories. We, he took us to Astro Game, sit behind President Bush. And uh, I found it very interesting to renew our acquaintances. But uh, he had a story about uh, oh, the Horn of Africa. He had taken uh, the governor of uh, Texas over there several times and become a, a donor of Israel. And he had been made, he had been given an assignment. He said, I want you to go to Yemen and I want you to offer all of the, the, the Jews who live in Yemen a free home in Israel so that they can get away from the trouble that is going to occur there. And I said, well, how many did you get to move? He said, none. They all wanted to stay in Yemen. But it's quite possible that we're talking about Sheba being the ruler of Yemen. Uh, and even though, as I look at the map, it's not on the Horn of Africa per se. It's just mighty close but uh, uh, he offered lavish tribute for them to move just as we see here he, Solomon visited Israel with the lavish tribute of 120 talents of gold US dollars maybe somewhere around $826,000 to a million uh, so so much for I won't call his name because I'm not sure he would want me to call his name, but uh, uh, he tried his best, as he said, to get them to move so that they wouldn't be involved in the what we see today, which is we have the cities, cities being bombed repeatedly. Okay, Dave, I'm sorry for interrupting you there. Point three. Go for it. The Hebrew scriptures state, and when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and their apparel, and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. That's from Second Chronicles chapter 9 verses 1 through 4. Point four, page seven. Clearly, the queen was impressed with Solomon and his accomplishments, and the two cultivated an intimate relationship, with Sheba helping create, foster, and maintain Solomon's trading with other Arabian nations and kings. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse one. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. Arriving with a very great caravan, carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. 
Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon, as well as the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, the cupbearers in their robes, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Point five. Additionally, according to the Rastafarian faith, Solomon and Sheba conceived a child together, whose descendants included Haley, Selassie, I, the god of the black race. If such was true, Selassie would have then be Selassie would then be related to both King David and Jesus Christ of Nazareth. King Solomon is credited in the Hebrew scriptures as sponsoring, planning, funding, and executing the building of the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, per the wishes of his father, King David, and God. You'll remember God would not let King David build the temple because he had so much blood on his hands, he, he refused. Uh, but he said, I will let your son do that, but I want you to get all the materials. So he off he went to various nations to bring in the product to, to be used in the construction and building of the temple. Point seven. The building of the temple is recorded in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, with the groundbreaking beginning in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and construction was completed seven years later with an ostentatious dedication. In a seven-day celebration, Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep to celebrate the temple's completion and God's willingness to dwell among them therein. The architectural design of the temple was modeled, modeled after the tabernacle that had housed the Ark of the Covenant for decades. Quite lavish, it was double the size and built mainly from stone, with cedar paneling to hide all masonry, which was overlaid with gold. Point nine. The inside of the temple was decorated with elaborate carvings, gourds and open flowers, golden lampstands, an altar of incense, also called, called the golden altar, and two bronze pillars, among other embellishments. In a less advanced architectural age, at over 100 feet long by 40 feet wide by 60 feet high, with outer doors of ivory, the first temple must have seemed an impossibility, a miraculous achievement for most visitors. According to the Old Testament, after the altar was completed, Solomon had the Ark of the Covenant moved from the tent that King David had made for it and placed it in specialized chamber on the most western end of the temple called the Holy of Holies. You can see a map of the temple. I call it a map, a schematic of the temple when you go to our website. And you'll note the, the uh, of course, the outer court, and the, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And uh, it was just a magnificent edifice, huge. And just think about how many cattle 
uh, we've just seen listed that were sacrificed there. And it was dedicated, and I always find it very interesting, the prayer that Solomon offered when he dedicated the temple. Uh, And he said, uh, and it will provide a place that we can turn to when we sin. And I use that so very often when some people think Christians don't sin. And, uh, of course, many places in the Bible it says Christians sin. And that's why we have to use First John 1, 9 to gain fellowship again. But I use this one from time to time or have in the past. Uh, because Solomon himself looked at the temple and said, Oh, what a wonderful structure it is. And when we sin, we can turn to the temple. And, of course, that's what they did when they were in Babylon. Uh, and we read in when we studied the book of Daniel. Okay, David. Again, top of page nine, point eleven, a perfect twenty by twenty by twenty foot cube. This was the most sacred room that no one besides the chief priest could enter, and that on the day of atonement, without dying. Institutionally and nationally, it was the intersection of the divine with his people through his mediator. The temple did not just house the Levitical priest of God. Side rooms and a courtyard were constructed around the whole building, with areas sectioned off for both the priest and the common people of Israel. Being a builder, King Solomon also engaged in other construction projects, such as his personal palace, the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon, the Hall of the Pillars, and the Hall of Justice. Yet, Solomon did not restrict his projects to Jerusalem alone. He also built several cities. He commissioned fleets of ships and built numerous harbors to accommodate the bounty of the trade routes. And he constructed stables to house his thousands of horses and chariots. Which reminds me, again, of a prohibition that Solomon did not uh, adhere to. They were not to have horses and chariots as I earlier noted, because it would remind them of uh, Egypt, and they may want to return to Egypt uh, and not uh, accept the wonderful gift that God had given them in the way of the Palestinian covenant, one of the four unconditional covenants provided to his people. So it is even possible that he helped erect or financed with plunder from the temple by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the legendary seven wonders of the world. Solomon's Literature, point one. King Solomon is also credited for contributing several books and literary works to the Hebrew Scriptures, including the book of Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. Although theology is a component of Solomon's writings, the wisdom genre, also seen in Egyptian and Akkadian literature, focuses more on areas outside of theology, providing advice on the created world, relationships, practical matters, and assorted personal topics or challenges. Thus, Proverbs deals with the art of living, 
with how to make intelligent choices for one's future well-being. The Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, is a romantic poem that presents the ultimate union between the bride and the bridegroom, focusing on themes of love, wisdom, beauty, power, desire, sex, loyalty, etc. And we have a uh, studied in a great amount of detail and have uh, on our website the Song of Solomon. Uh, and uh, it's quite lengthy, but it's very interesting as Solomon typifies uh, the world and the Shunammite girl typifies the Christian in the world. And uh, it's just a magnificent book. And we recommend it. And you can find it, of course, on the Internet. And we encourage you to go there to look at that because we don't intend to uh, be placing that on a podcast, but it is there for you to study. Point four, top of page 10. The book of Ecclesiastes is a royal testament that includes personal reflections, mediations, and instructions on the meaning and purposes of life. It alludes to several aspects that would have been relevant to Solomon's own personal experience. Wisdom, futility, riches, servants, hedonism, productivity, and humble self-realization. Solomon loses favor with God. Despite all of these great accomplishments, the Old Testament indicates that the decline of Solomon was similar to the fall of the previous kings of united Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel, respectively, and Judah. Very similar in that personal vanity and religious-slash-moral compromise led to a social disintegration and strife. Solomon slowly deprioritized his relationship and obligations to God in order to appease his many foreign wives and in order to protect the prosperity and longevity of his rule. Now, he had been given specific instructions not to marry wives from the various uh, cities surrounding Israel, but uh, he, God warned him, here's what's going to happen when you do. They're going to turn your heart to other gods. And indeed, they did turn their hearts after God's, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Uh, and that was a sad state of affairs, which led to many trials and tribulations. Uh, you can find that written in 1 Kings 11, 1, reading through verse 6. Why don't you give that a shot, David? And King Solomon, however loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Not surprised a bit. Not at all. 
In fact, as he grew old, as the scripture says, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Solomon's ungrateful, disloyal actions and attitude, despite being the wisest and most blessed man on the earth, provoked the anger and judgment of the Lord. Thus, although still able to keep control of the nation of Israel because of God's promise to King David, Solomon lost the protection and favor of God that earlier had provided remarkable peace and prosperity when he was obedient to God. King Solomon died of natural causes in circa 930 B.C. at the age of 80, his son, Rehoboam, inherited the throne, which led to a civil war and the end of the United Kingdom of Israel in B.C. 930. Jeroboam took control of the north and Rehoboam the south. That was a sad story, David. Uh, when uh, he, uh, of course, was, when he died, uh, he left the northern kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And the people came to Rehoboam and said, you know, Solomon was awful hard on us. I want to know, what are you going to do? It sounds like today's politicians, doesn't it, when they take over. Uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to ease off on us? He says, I'm going to be far harder on you than my dad ever was. And so as a result, uh, we had a split in the kingdom. We had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there was a guy by the name of Jeroboam as opposed to Rehoboam who was king of the south. And uh, of course, you, that's, you have uh, in, in the north, you have Israel and in the south, you have Judah. But he had gone down to Egypt and had done ad admirable work. And as a result, he took over the, again. And uh, <clears throat> we have this, unfortunately, uh, this anger between the north and the south. Sounds like a United States after the uh, uh, Civil War. Yeah, Civil War. But it uh, occurred. But let's close her out here with point. Point six, it says, His son Rehoboam inherited the throne, which led to a civil war and the end of the United Kingdom of Israel in B.C. 930. Jeroboam took control of the north and Rehoboam the south. Well, Jerry, that's going to be the conclusion of our study of Solomon. We appreciate you listening. And at this time... If there's anyone within the sound of our voice without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, within the privacy of your own heart and mind, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Amen.
Thanks for listening. So long.